beautiful people. Welcome to the Women in Theater podcast. We're your hosts, Haley Goldenberg. And Amy Andrews. Grab a cup of coffee and join us as we talk to people in the theater industry about their experiences with women. On the pod, we interview people with different gender identities from different backgrounds with varying levels of industry experience and professional roles. Our goal is to build community and pool our collective wisdom to break down the barriers we continue to beat. It's Women's History Month. Each week this month, we are spotlighting a woman in theater history that you should know about. This week, let's talk about Vinette Justine Carroll. Vinette Justine Carroll was an actor, playwright, and theater director. She performed in several Broadway plays, including the 1956 revival of A Streetcar Named Desire, Small War on Murray Hill, Jolly's Progress, and The Octoroon. Notably, she was the first Black woman to direct a show on Broadway with the musical Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, nominated for four Tony Awards in 1972. On today's episode, we sit down with multi-hyphenate performer and creative Kimberly Lada. Kim is an American Musical and Dramatic Academy and New School Musical Theater BFA program graduate. During her time completing her BFA, she became a contributing writer and published author for Pop Sugar Latina, performed in multiple college productions, along with other works, including performing with the Broadway cast of Chicago for Broadway Cares, appearing in CBS's The Code, and Nickelodeon's Club 57, and recently performing at Jacob's Pillow as a part of their first-ever Afro-Latin immersion program. She assisted writer-composer Jesse Sanchez for Sueños, our American musical, during its residency at New York Theatre Barn, and now is the associate producer for New York Theatre Barn. She recently produced, co-hosted, and performed for New York Theatre Barn's Musicals de Manana Latin Heritage Month celebration presentation at 54 Below this past fall. She is currently working as associate producer for Starting Up, a new musical comedy, and Dorothy Dandridge, the musical. Hello, beautiful people. We are here today with the multi-hyphenate, multi-talented Kim Lara. Kim, can you introduce yourself, share your pronouns, and tell us a little bit about what you do in theatrical spaces? Hey, my name is Kim. Pronouns she, her, and I am a performer, a producer, a playwright. I wear a lot of hats. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to the theater industry and to the many, many hats you wear? Yeah, so I actually did not grow up up really into it. I sort of got into performing in secret. I did not come from a very creative artistic family. I was in choir growing up. I would co-direct and co-choreograph and work within our musicals that we produced that came from a very low-income school. Our musicals were on a stage in our cafeteria. My family just saw it as a hobby a very committed hobby because I also was doing my AA in business while I was in school as well. So they were like, that's what she's doing. When you come from like immigrant parents, you do what you can for them and whatever makes them smile when you say it. I already had some state schools lined up to go to senior year. And then it was just like, this just doesn't feel right. I need to give myself a chance. And my dad was coming to this performance. It was a show that I had co-directed, co-choreographed, and it was going to be in. And I was just like, if this show totally sucks, I will go to business school. But I was like, if it's somewhat good, you have to please let me audition for a theater school. I think I blacked out that whole performance. <laughs> I came backstage and my dad was already there. Aww. And was like, let's go. Let's do it. He's a tough guy. And he's someone I had to really convince to support me. I couldn't go into this or make that decision without their support. I don't know where I'd be without it today. So 
I only auditioned to one school, which was the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, because it was so late in the year. Before you know it, I was two weeks after graduation moving to New York by myself. Wow. So I got into it there. That was the first time I ever sang a solo, which was terrifying. In that first day of class, my professor asked who's done this, 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 and that. And I was the only one who didn't raise my hand. I knew I have to be the one who works harder than everyone else. And that also taught me to wear many hats throughout even my training. My professor saw the initiative I was taking and put me in roles as like dance captain, co-director of little shows that were being put at my school. That helped me to also professionally get a taste of those things and understand more of the offstage work before I knew the onstage. And I think it really did help me in producing the type of work I do today and the intention I have with every decision I make. I always put everyone else before me especially the actors, especially the storytellers, the writers, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's their stories, it's their art, and we have to be there to support them. As long as I'm just a part of the process, I am happy with it. That's a really cool perspective. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on creatively right now? Right now, I am working on starting up a new musical comedy that I was brought on as associate producer for some fundraising and working on getting that to just be on its feet and play. It's at a very early developmental stage. And so that's where I'm at with that. Aside from producing work, I am working on a one woman show about an experience I had growing up where I thought my mom was going to get deported. There's no stories about what kids feel in that moment, especially children of immigrants that were born in the United States. I was like 15 or so. I had been raising money by selling chocolate bars for like two years to go on this class trip to Europe. And for a lot of kids in my school, this was a big deal because a lot of us had never even left the country. And a lot of us come from low income families. And we just never thought that would be a possibility until we were like grown up. And it was the day I sold my last chocolate bar. I was going on that trip. I was really, really excited to tell my family. I went home and then I found that my dad was early home from work for a long time. We lived with my grandmother, which was basically eight people in a two-bedroom apartment. I was surprising that he was the only one there and I was the only one there. And he sat me down. My dad doesn't really sit me down for talks. And I thought I was getting the sex talk and I was freaking out. I could have never predicted the next words he was going to say when he was just like, one day your mom's not going to be here and that's okay. I I couldn't process what that meant. I was like, is she going on a trip? Is he talking about death? And... He was like, your mom's not a citizen and the possibility of her being deported is very high at the moment. And in that moment, life did stop for me being like, I have to drop out of school. I have to get a job. I have to help my dad. I have to basically raise my siblings. That whole time period, like every day I hugged my mom longer. She didn't know that I knew. And I would sometimes pretend to be sick from school just so I can be here to make sure she'd come back from work because I was scared to come back from school and her not be home. I used to call her at work all the time. And it was just a very scary moment. I just remember overhearing them talk about needing money for a lawyer, needing money for this and this and that. And the next day I went to my trip advisor. I lied and said, like, my parents don't want me to go on the trip. They're scared. Um, I'm going to need that money back. That same day, I just gave my parents some money. Europe will always be there. Mom is not. And I want my mom here as long as I can. Honestly... I would have taken the news easier if my dad was to say your mom's going to be gone and that meant she was going to pass away. At least when someone passes away, you understand they're gone. But to know she's gone because of a law and she's just 
breathing, living somewhere else, and I have no accessibility to her is way more torturous. Thankfully, she's still here with me in the United States. But, you know, a lot of kids, especially like where I was from in Miami, did not know if that was going to happen to their parents or even to them. It's something that a lot of us didn't really talk about out loud because, you know, it was also just not wanting to bring shame to our parents or making people think our parents aren't worthy of being here and that we're not worthy of being here. It was isolating for a lot of people and talking about immigration is still hard. And so that's the story I'm working on. It's something I really want to share with the world. Kim, thank you so much for sharing that. Would you say that sharing these types of stories is a part of a larger creative mission for you? I would say yes. I think it does bring in a lot of what I believe in. The longer I've been in this industry, the more I've been driven to really be a part of Latin stories and support Latin artists as much as I can. Growing up, it was so hard to find representation for myself on a stage. When it comes to representation, a lot of people get confused. For example, like this brown girl played this role. Just because you cast a diverse cast in a white story does not change the dynamic of it being a white story. It is still not our story. There is a lot of work there that needs to be done in really having shows that represent a group of people and their upbringing and their culture in a way that doesn't fetishize it, exploit it, or just constantly cater to white sympathy. That's a reason why a lot of us in this industry have been fighting for recent shows that have been closing about underrepresented groups of people. K-pop and Ain't No Mo. Yeah, those are stories that truly did show a group of people and like culture and people within cast just really being themselves. For those to be the shows that were closing so suddenly, it was heartbreaking. And it also just goes into the whole problem with like Broadway marketing and promo. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As a lot of these shows, I'd ask people, did you know about this? And they'll be like, no, I didn't even know that open. Who's making the decisions? Who's on the team for making those decisions? And and who's speaking up for everyone? Yeah. Given that drive and that creative mission, I think it's really cool that you are a multi-hyphenate and that you're approaching the problem from all different sides, from writing and from performing and from producing, because those are all silos of representation. You can do a lot by approaching the problem from different angles. And you're already so accomplished. It's very impressive and very exciting. Do you want to talk a little bit about musicals of Manana? Yeah, that was a show at 54 Below that showcased seven new Latin musicals, all written and composed by Latin artists. It was just so fun to see so many Latin artists in one room and really have like a full Latin creative team also behind it. Co-producing that with Hector, who's part of New York Theatre Barn, was just such a privilege. And to be part of that stage and asked to co-host was so much fun. Amazing. Kim, we've been talking a lot about identity and your experience as a child of an immigrant family. I'm curious about how you see womanhood as fitting into all of that and how those intersections sort of play in your life in theater and in general? When it comes to womanhood, a hard lesson I've learned is putting myself first. There's always like that sense of guilt and selfishness, especially when you come from such a family-driven moral compass. And of course, I still have that in mind. Everything I do, I always have my family at my core, but it has been tough. There has been tensions at times where I choose me before them. They don't understand it's for a greater picture in my mind. (laughs) And it's hard. It's hard for them to unlearn that as well. 
a lot of us in this generation are trying to teach our parents, unfortunately, to unlearn old generational habits and they're coming from past traumas. Yes, they have to do with us, but we don't have to carry with us, especially when there were things out of our control. I think a lot of us have done a great job at addressing it and being aware of when that drives our decisions. There's a lot of unlearning that has to happen within our family, especially within women. I'd say Latin women um, have a lot of unlearning to do. Back to the question of womanhood in theater, I'd say generational trauma of just being a woman and being a woman of color. I do carry that with me in a room and I always make sure there is a voice for me that there is someone who's speaking for what we need as whatever hat we're wearing, especially when it comes to the vessel of the storytelling, that there is a voice saying, this isn't right, or this doesn't feel right, or I heard this and this just didn't sit the way it's supposed Mm -hmm. to. I feel like a lot of people need to take more time in testing out and hearing feedback, especially about what works in a room and what doesn't in a script, especially, and in a story. I feel like a lot of writers sort of sit with their stories with themselves and think this is going to deliver the way it's going to deliver. But it's like, you won't know until you see someone's face when they're watching it. That was like a big mission for me as a producer on starting up. There was a lot of sensitive jokes for our second round of readings. I was like, we're not gatekeeping this. I just want to hear from the people who are going to buy the tickets, the people who are going to sit in the seat. On like theater Twitter. I don't know if you know about that group of people. <laughs> theater Twitter created by the iconic Ayana Prescott, who I love and adore. And I blasted it on there. And a lot of people responded back. And a lot of people came. They were very excited. And a lot of people were like, I've never been to a reading like this. Yeah. That's really cool that you That's invited fun. the theater going public to a show and development. I have not heard a lot of people taking that approach. That's so cool. It's like a focus group almost. A thing that we've been talking a lot about is ways to bring support for developmental processes on like create pipelines for developing new musicals or new shows written by new voices, written from diverse perspectives. And I think it's such a cool concept. I mean, the same way that some shows do like a concept album that they'll release before a show to get the target audience on board so they can really help to shape the show. Yeah, it's a really innovative approach. Yeah. I even invited students from AMDA, just different groups of people, especially because the show, it addresses a lot of generations within its jokes and the concepts. And it was very interesting to hear what landed for some age groups and what didn't. It was very nice to get that feedback. And I think a lot of producers should take that approach. I just don't understand the concept of making readings exclusive. It's one of the most exciting parts of the developmental process. It's so new and it can go in any direction. I do want to continue to invite theater goers and those who are just interested in hearing new stories. Even when you see a show in preview and then you see it open, it's like, oh, that's not the version I saw. And knowing like you were part of that first experience It's such a great way to like build a deep relationship with the community. It's so smart. You see all these like TikTok musicals and stuff coming out. And I think that the reason that some of those were so successful and so viral was that people felt like they were a part of the creative process. And you're kind of replicating that within a structure of theater making as it is. So I just think that's really, really cool. Yeah, that people are invested, not financially invested, but like personally invested in the telling of this story. And I think because it was 
free and much more accessible for people. It's one of those like, come if you want. And a lot of people were sharing about it on theater Twitter being like, thank you for this. People should go see this. Someone even made a TikTok that was sharing their experience and how much they loved it. People are talking about starting up and that's what I wanted to spark up at the end of the day. Cool. We've already been touching on the topic of changes that you'd like to see and that you are actively making happen in the theater industry, which I love. Are there any other big picture changes that you want to see or be a part of in the theater industry? I just want to be a part of more fun, genuine stories. I think the world's been pretty tough on us as human beings. And a lot of stories have been really tough. And, you know, they're real stories and they're stories of struggle, stories of hardship. But I feel like a lot of theater nowadays is just catering to white sympathy, especially after 2020. I sort of miss going to the theater and laughing. I sort of miss that spark of imagination in my mind and just being in that escape, a story that just transports me to another world. And I feel like a little kid again. I want that feeling. And those stories can be represented in a way that also can share someone's culture, can also share people's struggles. It could also be magical. For example, like when you see Lion King or something that overly produced set, like where am I? Well, like, and the puppetry right. and the choreography, like all of it. Yeah, that opening okay. number, I am no longer in the real world. It is just so magical to watch that transformation every time and not even notice that you're being transported. And a lot of shows just, I feel like are lacking that magic. I just want that grandness back. We are so focused on the budget, on what we can do with this budget. Focus on limitations that we lose the imagination. That's where the wonder lost in these stories. And that's where that transformative aspect of someone leaving so changed or just so in awe is sort of lost. I just think people have to sometimes step away from the limitations and the money and focus on the imagination and how far we can go. If I didn't have this budget, what would I do? And that's how you know if also if someone believes in that story as much as they cling to. Even if you take away the money, would you still be doing this? Would you still be fighting to tell this story on a stage and telling it in a way that will change people when they leave? Kim, can you tell us a little bit about your work with the Afro-Latin Immersion Program at Jacob's Pillow? I was part of the first ever Afro-Latin program at Jacob's Pillow. We did not know it was that big of a deal until we were there. Everyone that worked there was saying, we've never seen this. We've never seen such work happen, especially emotionally, from a group of people. It gave us all the chance to channel something we've never channeled in the art we create and in performance. I've never felt more connected to my ancestors than I did during that time. I still feel them here with me through every movement, through every sound I made. To be able to dive into art like that, it truly just felt like something every artist or creative just needs to do for themselves to really understand why they do what they do. The people at Jacob's Pillow were so aware of the fact that we were a group of people of color who are always in white spaces. And this program... It was about us and even our team from the iconic Maria Torres and so many other people who were the greatest guides to have and taught us besides the styles of Afro-Latin dance from all over the world. We learned that aspect of us understanding this comes from something much deeper. 
it's not just us learning a dance. It's understanding why we danced. It changed a lot of our perspectives on dance. I never called myself a dancer because I didn't grow up training as a dancer. And that was like my biggest insecurity going into there. I was like, a dance program. How do I tell them? I just started pointing my toe like four years ago, but I left so assured of that title for myself. There's an article about my experience and I go into it much more, but yeah, that was just so beautiful to be a part of. And the level of connection was otherworldly. That company, we truly have just the most unconditional love for one another. I've never been so reassured of everything I did than being there with those people. I came out a different version of myself beyond an artist, just as a human being. Very grateful for that experience and being recognized by the American Dance Guild for that performance was such an honor. I could have never predicted that to happen. Really remarkable. That's really cool. I do have one last question for you, which is what are you most proud of in your life and your career, Kim? In everything that I've done, from every solo I sung in college to every producing work I've done to my performance at Jacob's Pillow, I have never lost my sense of where I came from. And I'm very proud of that. Especially when you start out, you're very afraid to stand up for yourself in rooms and just want to say yes, want to just agree because you got in the room and that's enough especially for women of color. You got in the room and you're like, I made it. But there's so much more. I'm so grateful that I've been given the opportunities that I have and been able to always share a part of myself on that stage and part of my story on a stage. I feel so privileged to be able to always fight for myself in a room and never give up on myself. Kim, thank you so much for your time and for your honesty and your vulnerability and just sharing with us. I am so honored to be here. I'm truly so grateful. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Women in Theater podcast. We're your hosts, Haley Goldenberg and Amy Andrews. If you like what you heard, subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you listen. You can also follow us on social at Women in Theater Project to make sure you never miss an episode. The music for this show is written by talented Women in Theater community member Chloe Geller. Thanks again for listening, everyone. See you next time. Bye.